Well, if you read ahead this week, you might have some special interest in our passage this morning. As it's talking about taxes. Asking about paying taxes. And you might be very interested in the answer as you've recently done your taxes and been shocked by how much you owe on your taxes. And in another week, you have to pay up. So you might be here this morning searching for some solution to keep some dollars in your pockets. But spoiler alert, you will be disappointed. But why does passage deal specifically with taxes? Passage this morning more broadly covers the topic of the government's authority, their reach, and our response to it. And unless you've been asleep over the last couple of years, that is a topic we all need some help understanding. And the Lord helps us understand. If we want to know how to relate as God's people to the government, we don't need to consult blog posts or big news outlets. We have a Bible. God, in his kindness, has given us his word to give us wisdom in every season and in every setting and on every subject that we might live faithfully for him. And so the subject this morning that he gives us wisdom on is the government. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22? And this morning we'll look at verses 15 through 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs under your seat, you can find it on page 827. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you to have your own copy of God's Word. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Now, here's what I think is is the main point of of these Eight, nine verses in in Matthew 22, 15 to 22, the main point of the sermon this morning. Christians have dual obligations to both God and government. So give to each what is owed to them. 
Christians have dual obligations to both God and government. So give to each what is owed to them. As we study this passage together, we'll hang our thoughts on kind of the two parts that we see presented in this passage. The question in verses 15 through 17 and Jesus' response in verses 18 through 22. So two points to the sermon. Point number one, a question to catch Jesus up. We see that in verses 15 through 17. And number two, Jesus' response to convict us all. Verses 18 through 22. A question to catch Jesus up. Point number one. Number two, Jesus' response to convict us all. First, a question to catch Jesus up. Now, as a refresher to where we are, we're at the point in Matthew's gospel where it's the last week of Jesus's life. A fitting as this coming week for us is the last week that we commemorate the, the events of Jesus's life. The, the final days where Jesus died for our sins and rose again three days later to show his payment for our sins was sufficient. This last week is the high point in Matthew. If you doubt that, just look at how much ink he devotes to this time period. He spent the first 20 chapters cataloging roughly the, the first three years of Jesus's public ministry. But then Matthew slows way down and spends the last eight chapters of the book looking at just one week of Jesus's life. This last week. And in this last week, we see the opposition to Jesus heightened. We know that Jesus has confronted the Jewish leaders in, in the temple. And starting in chapter 21, verse 28, through where we were last week in chapter 22, verse 14, Jesus spoke to these religious leaders in three parables, themselves forms of judgment, telling stories that placed them outside of God's kingdom for rejecting God's king. Jesus himself. And starting with our passage this morning and stretching to the end of chapter 22, we see three more confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. Three encounters where they ask Jesus questions to try to trap him. We see that explicitly here. Right, look at verse 15. We read, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. The Pharisees are hard-hearted. Nothing seemingly will change their course to try to destroy Jesus. Jesus' words have already challenged them in the previous conversations. But they've responded either in feigned ignorance. Remember in chapter 21, verse 27, they acted like they didn't know where John's or Jesus' authority came from. Or they responded in outright opposition. Chapter 21, verse 46 says they, they sought to arrest him. And now again, after hearing the last parable about being shut out of the kingdom, they respond not in repentance, but in a veiled, but still vicious plot to put him to death with his own words. Seeking some incriminating evidence they could later use to crucify him. And these are the religious leaders. You wonder, don't you? Were the Pharisees always so calculating? 
so cutthroat? Well, Jesus will later say in chapter 23 how evil their hearts and practices have been all along. But they on the outside were seemingly polished, seemingly pious, maybe like you are, until your position gets threatened, until things don't go your way, until you're opposed. Then the real you comes out. Then the rebel you comes out. And how do you respond when people tell you no? Or tell you about yourself. Does a switch go off that, that then makes them instantly a target of your vitriol and your hatred and anger? Everybody seems godly when things are going well. But what about when there's challenge? What happens in your heart? What habits does it produce? Jesus is a competitor to the Pharisees' supposed monopoly on ministry, on pure religion. And so to keep the big business of their brand of religion going, they try to take the competition out by plotting to entangle him in his words. That's such an ungodly thing to do. Spend all your time planning how to trip someone up in their words, asking questions to them. Engaging in conversations with them, interacting with their material, only to fire off against them. Is that why you read your Bible? Not to gain understanding and submit to Jesus, but to find contradictions. Supposedly trap Jesus in his words. Is that how you use social media? Is that why you follow and engage with people you disagree with? just to find more ammunition to fire off at them. We say, I think, how many professing Christians in our day are doing that sort of thing? Tracking every single thing another person says and then using that as fodder for criticism. You wonder what time they're giving to actually caring for people in their charge. What positively are they contributing to their own souls, to their own families, to their own churches. You wonder the same with the Pharisees. They're spending so much time opposing Jesus. How much time are they spending positively instructing the people? Well, they're not. The only kind of instruction they're providing is a negative one. Teaching people the wrong thing. To go against God. To try to put to death the God of life. To reject Jesus. Notice in verse 16, they have their disciples. People look up to them and follow them down this path of destruction. I think it shows us that just because a movement has some members, don't make it right. The Ku Klux Klan had leaders and disciples. So does the nation of Islam. So did the Pharisee party. But they were and are all opposed to the plans of God and the person of his son, Jesus Christ, either in practice or in profession. Be careful who you follow. And we also learn in verse 16 that these Pharisee disciples partner up with the Herodians in confronting Jesus. The Herodians were, as their 
name suggests, supporters of Herod, the puppet king in the northern region that was propped up and powered by Rome. And so these Herodians would be pro-government, pro-Roman rule, pro-Roman rights, which makes them odd collaborators with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were Jews who despised the fact that Rome ruled in their land, the holy Jerusalem. They wanted nothing to do with Rome. Indeed, they and the people seemingly thought that the Messiah was coming to kick the Roman rule out. So so there couldn't have been two groups more opposed to each other. Except that they both hated Jesus even more than they despised what each other represented. A common enemy made them friends. They were united in their opposition to Jesus. And their plan to take him down was by tricking him into a question about taxes. Notice how they approach Jesus in verse 16. With the most polite and flattering language. Teacher! We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about people's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances. This is exhibit A of somebody being fake. This is flattery on full display, using false words to hide a more vicious purpose. They didn't really believe Jesus was true. They opposed that he was the true king, the true Messiah. I mean, earlier in the book, they even claimed that he was demon-possessed. But they'll say anything to get Jesus to to, to lower his guards a bit so that he can say what they want, what they need him to say to be able to accuse him to the people and ultimately to destroy him. And so after buttering him up, they ask in verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We know you don't care who's here, Jesus, Pharisee or Herodian. And you always tell the truth. So tell us, what should a good Jew, one of God's people do in regards to paying the Roman tax? Should we pay it or not? Uh, Be truthful. Be brutally honest. Tell us plainly. They want Jesus to do what they would not do. Speak plainly and honestly. They were too blind to see it. But that's something of a short description of why Jesus came. To do what we could not do. Would not do. Live a life of complete righteousness and holiness to God in word and in deed. But his perfect life on our behalf is only applied to us if we embrace him, if we believe him, something the religious leaders were not willing to do. And so they ask this question here about paying taxes as another act of rejection. And again, the Pharisees and the Herodians, opposed as they were, would drastically think differently about this topic. The Pharisees despised this poll tax or census tax that was imposed by Rome. We got to pay taxes to Rome to live in our own land, occupied by them. They hated it. 
It represented for them submission to pagan, God-defying Rome. Which not only rubbed them the wrong way personally, they also thought it was against Scripture. Which is probably why they ask, is it lawful? Does it contradict God's law, the, the Torah? I mean, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15, said that the Jews should not place a foreigner over them as king. Paying taxes to Caesar, the Roman emperor, surely then was a sign that he was king over them. And so they bucked. And then on the complete other opposite side of the spectrum, the Herodians, who again did Herod's bidding, who sought to advance Herod's agenda, they would have been wholeheartedly in favor of imposed taxes. They relied on Rome's support to stay in power. And so they supported anything that Rome did. So, so, so these two groups are diametrically opposed to one another on this topic. But on this topic, they find common ground to try to trip Jesus up. You see, if he says yes to their question, it, it is lawful to, to, to pay taxes to Caesar, then he'll seemingly betray the Jewish people. It seemed to be an advocate of Roman rule, be a sellout. And seem to be promoting paganism. What with Rome's pagan emperor and all? Surely then the people would not go around praising him. They'd be seeking, like any good Jew, to put him to death. But if he says no to the question, then the Herodians who are there to represent Rome's rule and Rome's best interest will claim that he's a threat to the states, that he's trying to start an insurrection. It's a plan to, to either put Jesus on the side of our group or to pit Jesus against the governments. Something we still see today. Trying to make Jesus all about religion or all about revolution. What are you going to say, Jesus? What do you say? Are you truly for God, for God's people? Then surely you can't pay this tax. Or are you a coward? who caves in to the government's demands. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's the framework that sadly so many of us have been presented with as the supposedly only two options for us as citizens. We either serve God or government. But friends, that's a rather simplistic calculation of how God has called us to live. It makes it seem like those commitments are totally and always contrary to one another and cannot overlap. But what does Jesus say? And that leads us to point number two, Jesus' response to convict us all. Jesus' response to convict us all. Look there at verse 18. The Pharisees and, and Herodians have laid out this loaded question that they want a straightforward and a declarative answer to, a straightforward yes or no answer to. But, but verse 18 says, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Jesus doesn't give them what they want. An immediate answer, a reductionistic response. Instead, he answers their question with a question. Why do you put me to the test, hypocrites? He sees right through their little plan. 
Isn't that something? I mean, they thought they crafted the perfect question to catch Jesus up. They got together and probably spent long hours into the night in this little planning session. They had their whiteboard out, writing out different scenarios and erasing them. Now, he's too smart for that one. They're writing another one and erasing it again. And he knows his Bible too well for that one. With all these kind of scholars chiming in with more and more and more suggestions until they all finally landed on the perfect question. One with just the right mix of theology and ethics, religious and political implications. A question that they were certain would cause Jesus to hang himself with his words. They came to Jesus confident that their long hours of plotting would pay out. And in mere seconds, Jesus sniffs out their plans. Sniffs out their hearts. They're filled with hatred, with malice against them. Jesus sees inside of us, behind our words, into our hearts. You cannot hide your true intentions from him. He knows what they've come to do. Test him, tempt him. And he knows who they are. Hypocrites. Why does he call them hypocrites? Because they've come like they really want to know the answer to the question. As if it will lead to action. But really, neither group has any plans to change their minds or to do what Jesus says. If he says yes to their question, the Pharisees have no intention to alter their mindset on tax paying. They will not go back to the temple and then start immediately teaching that it's good to pay taxes to Rome. And if he says no, neither do the Herodians intend to change their mindset or practices. They don't plan on going back and lobbying Herod and through him Caesar to not tax these Jews in Jerusalem. No, they want to know what Jesus has to say, but with no intention to actually doing or following what he says. Does that describe you? Young people, is coming to church, hearing these messages, learning about Jesus, just an exercise in futility for you? Something you do, but regardless of what he says in his word, you have no intention on living for him, in changing your mindset for him, and going to school any differently than you were tomorrow. Older folks, are you so set in your ways that regardless of what Jesus says, you won't change. Now, if he says what you want, what already confirms what you want to do or what you think, then fine. But if he says something opposite to your desires, in his word, through his people, through the preacher, is there already an automatic wall you've constructed that you will not do that, that you ain't going to change that? Maybe that's how you approach seeking counsel from other Christians. You ask them questions that on the surface seem genuine. But really, you've already made your mind up about what you will or won't do. Their input is just so you can mark off the list, involve others in the decision-making process, check. <laughs> Maybe this is how you approach prayer. Asking God to, to make known his will about taking this job or entering this relationship or about this life decision. 
But you've already made your decision. And regardless of what he says, you are not changing your mind. Friends, that is being hypocritical. Saying you believe the Bible is God's word. You believe that Jesus is true and trustworthy and what he says is true, but you have no intention of obeying the truth. If it counters your truth, what you desire and feel. These people have come to catch Jesus up. But Jesus' response, even initially, should convict them, should convict us. Why have you come to test me of all people? Jesus has come to rescue us. But with our cunning, with our deceitfulness, without trying to fashion him into our own image, make him a slave to our desires, we keep coming at him to wreck him. Why? It shows the evil of our hearts, the sinfulness of our hearts. It shows all the more why we need Jesus. We need a savior of our sins. Our sin is so deep that we try to destroy or deny the only one who can help us, who has helped us. You see, Jesus is the one who who can save us from our sins. And he came and in just a few days from this encounter, he laid down his life to save sinners like us by his death on the cross. That was a substitute for us. He died on the grave, on the cross for us, but Jesus was raised up three days later for us, showing that his payment was sufficient for all the sins of all who would trust in him. But we only get in on that if we turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Have you done that? Will you do that? If not, why? Jesus is asking you today, why do you keep testing me with your unbelief? Jesus here doesn't even give them a a chance to answer the question, you see. He moves on to to, to make a demand. He, He says in verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And they bring him a denarius. A denarius was, was a silver coin valued at about a day's wage. But more importantly than what it was worth was what it portrayed. On one side of the coin was a portrait of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor. And just under the portrait was this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. What? The very notion would have been abhorrent to any self-respecting Jew. Here is this mere man claiming to be divinity. There is only one God, Yahweh, not Caesar. The very coin was like a finger in the eye of the Jews with their monotheism. Their claim of belief in one invisible God. Here is your God, the Romans were saying on this silver coin. Look at Caesar. Which makes what Jesus says next pretty remarkable. He takes this coin and asks in verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? They respond in verse 21, Caesar's. And he says, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It was a remarkable statement for a number of reasons. 
I mean, first, in the wider scope of things, Israel was used to operating under a theocracy. God was their king, their sovereign. He ruled over them directly, and he directly gave them laws and customs to keep as his people. And even the pagan people in the Roman Empire, they thought that Caesar, their ruler, was a god. I mean, their very money testified to that. And yet here's Jesus, the eternal son of God, certainly not claiming that Caesar is God, yet nonetheless saying that pagan Caesar has some authority over the people in his realm. He has the right to levy tax and his right to pay it. Whether you're a pious Jew or a pagan Gentile, paying the tax, submitting to Caesar's order to do so is not a sign of religious devotion to Caesar, but civic duty as citizens in his province. Jesus establishes here a principle of God's people being good citizens, obeying civil laws and orders, even if those over them are far away from God. I mean, you see signs of that in the Old Testament with Joseph's service in pagan Pharaoh's government or Daniel's service in pagan Nebuchadnezzar's service. It was good for them to be employed in pagan governments. And friends, as a note, it is good for you. Many of you who work in federal government or D.C. government to be employed in a non-Christian secular government. Thank you for your service as civil servants in the government. Jesus makes the point that a government's legitimacy is not tied to religious beliefs. Whose likeness is on this coin? Caesar's. Well, give back to him. Render to him what he asked for. Give him back what is his to ask for. We see here that civil governments have a sphere of authority. And so while the Jews of Jesus' Jesus's day and many of the supposed real, bold Jesus followers of our day, well, while they all might loudly claim, I don't serve anybody but God. Only God can command me what to do. Well, okay, he's commanded you to obey the commands of the people he's put in charge over you. And Jesus says there are certain things that belong to Caesar. There is a sphere of authority that is his. There are things that he has the right to ask his citizens to do. And those citizens should comply. This isn't the response that was expected. I mean, the Herodians thought that Jesus would surely not pick this stance. I mean, it would alienate him from his own people, make him a traitor. They were just waiting for him to say, of course you don't pay the taxes to this wicked pagan ruler. And they were eager to then take that refusal, back up the chain all the way to Rome to put down yet another Jewish revolution against the throne. But instead of a revolution against the throne, Jesus shows a regard for the throne, for positions of power. It's amazing. Here is the king of heaven come to earth saying to honor the kings of the earth. Even pagan 
unbelieving, evil as they might be. They are instruments in God's hands to accomplish his purposes. I mean, Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 says that God is the one who sets up kings and removes kings. God says in Proverbs verse 8, verse 15, uh, chapter 8, verse 15, speaking as wisdom personified, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. Every king ultimately has their position because of God. And a sovereign God who puts kings in place in their positions is the same God who puts us in place, positioned under them in certain spaces and at certain times. Caesar, kings, governments, authorities have a God-given right to rule over the people God has given them charge over. And God's people have a God-given responsibility to submit to, to be subject to their authority. So yes, render to Caesar what's owed to him. Pay him taxes, pay him respect, follow his laws and ordinances. And yes, friends, pay your taxes. Pay respect to our government leaders. Follow their laws and ordinances, and it doesn't matter if they're Christian or not. We do not need a Christian leader in the White House or in Congress or in the state building in Maryland or in the position of PG County executive to obey them. We don't need to agree with all their stances or policies to pray for them and respect them. That's why on Sunday mornings we prayed unapologetically for President Trump and for President Biden. For our Republican governor and our Democratic county executive. We understand that it is God who put them over us and we should respect and pray and submit to them. We don't need them to be Christians to do that. What we need is to be committed to obeying God by honoring them and following their commands. Now, right now, something in the pit of your stomach is ready to scream out, no, I don't like that. I don't accept that. I'm not doing that. If right now you're ready to buck against Jesus here, buck against me for saying what I've just said, that we should follow pagan leaders' orders, then you're probably feeling just like the Pharisees gathered around Jesus as he spoke. They are boiling right now. Can't believe Jesus would choose pagan Caesar over his own people. Seemingly pick pagan Caesar over God. It seems they've got Jesus right where they want him. Ready now to turn Jesus over to public opinion for the Jews to castigate him for being a traitor. A sellout. But Jesus hasn't just spoken about what's owed to Caesar. That's only one part. Yes, render to Caesar what belongs to him, what's under his purview, and give to God what's God's. You see, Jesus eliminates an either-or option. You serve government or you serve God. No, you have duties as it relates to the government, and you have duties as it relates to God. And friends, the latter always trumps the former. 
You see, Jesus understands that God's people have dual citizenship. We are citizens under civil authorities. And we are citizens under a greater heavenly authority. But the two are not incompatible. As a matter of fact, part of your faithfulness to serving God is you serving those God has placed over you. Submission to human authority is part of what worshiping God looks like. Notice Jesus says, render to to God what belongs to God. Just as he says to render to Caesar what was his. And, and, and remember what visual aid Jesus used as it relates to Caesar. This coin that had Caesar's likeness on it. I think that's an intentional move. Uh, talking about likeness here. Because when we go through the Bible and think of likeness or image, our minds think back to Genesis chapter 1. Where in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says that God created mankind in his likeness. In the image of God, he created them. And so if what belonged to Caesar in this immediate instance was what bore his image, then what belongs to God? Well, it's what bears his image. It's us. Our entire beings, every part of our lives, every area of our lives are meant to be an expression of worship to him. The Apostle Paul understood that. After talking about all the wonderful benefits of God's gracious work in saving sinners like us in Romans chapter 1 all the way through Romans chapter 11, he then gives some practical implications for what that means for us. And starting in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, in light of all God has done for you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your entire life since you've been saved, since Jesus has given you a new life, then present your entire life as an act of worship. And then Paul goes on to list what that looks like outdoing one another in showing honor, loving one another with brotherly affection, uh, living peaceably with one another, and then stretching into Romans chapter 13, included in this entire life as worship response to God, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Submitting to governing authorities is not the act of a wimp. It is worship of God. And resisting authorities is resisting what God has appointed, is not worshiping God. Now, let there be no mistake. Greater allegiance is always due God than any human government. God's sphere of authority, unlike the government's, is wide-reaching, has no limits. Everything belongs to him, including us. 
So where governmental authority impedes upon or clashes with God's authority, calls for us to do things against God's word or against God's will, we must always say we must obey God and not man. And that's what Peter and John told the Jewish authorities in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when they told them to, to no longer speak about Jesus. No, we must obey God rather than man. There are some limits to human authority, some orders that Christians can't submit to. And so rightfully, over the years, Christians have stood firm and said no to state-sanctioned practices of slavery and discrimination, the slaughter of innocent babies in or freshly out of the womb, laws trying to create a marriage between two men or two women, or trying to erase God-given distinctions between men and women. Those things don't belong to Caesar. And when he, when the government seeks to overstep its boundaries, go beyond their sphere of authority, it's good and it's right for us to pray and for us to use every political tool and resource and our voices to try to stop or slow the abuses of power. But friends, not everything, everything meets that criteria. Indeed, most things don't reach that criteria. Normal warp and woof, woof pattern of the Christian life is to submit to governing authorities and to institutions. The normal everyday expectation of Christians is to pay taxes, to keep laws, to show respect under the wider umbrella of this too is worship of God. This too belongs to him. Now, that counters some of the loudest voices in our day, sometimes coming from Christian circles. Some act as if what God solely demands is our resistance to government. But we've been created in the image of God. So what God primarily demands is that we image him, reflect his holy character in all of life. So that's why it's totally inconsistent, hypocritical to be consumed with only calling out the government's commendation of sinful behavior, but not be concerned with condemning and rooting out your own sinful behavior. Why it's wrong to push back strongly against every command, every law, every mandate the government gives, supposedly violating your personal freedom, but then perverting your Christian freedom by indulging your flesh with every temptation. It's blind to be incensed at the government's push to promote an anti-biblical sexual agenda. But you continue sleeping with your boyfriend or watching porn every day. I'm not saying you shouldn't be incensed about those things. What I am saying is that you need to be careful. You need to be consistent. Satan is slick. He loved to focus your eyes so much on fighting against the government's wrongs that you miss addressing your own wretchedness. The disapproval of the government can be a convenient distraction from digging into your own sin and diligently seeking to live a holy life to God. But Satan will love to make you think you're doing God's work and bucking against the government's. But in actuality, you might be bucking against God. 
against God's desire to, to look closer at your own life first. Against God's design for you to be under a government. You are called to give the government what is owed. Respect, taxes, submission in their spheres of authority. And to give to God what is owed. A life that looks like his. How do you know what that life looks like? Well, look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The exact imprint of his nature. And as our image is renewed after him in salvation, our lives should look more like his. So what have we seen of Jesus as he's been presented in Matthew's gospel? We've seen that he's compassionate and holy, loving and truthful, tender and kind. He hates sin, wholeheartedly loves and submits to the Lord and submits to the government demanding here that taxes be paid to support the Roman government. Even though those taxes probably paid for the pavement of the road that led out to Calvary. Even though those taxes probably paid for the salaries of the centurion soldiers who arrested and beat and spit upon and slapped and mocked King Jesus. Even though those taxes probably paid for the materials those soldiers used to kill Jesus. The stakes that were driven into his hands and his feet and the mallets that were used to drive them. The axes that were used to chop up the rough wood into crossbeams. Jesus said, pay the taxes knowing that a pagan government would not only use them for some good, but for some incredible evil. And yet, he said, still pay. Submit to them. And not for their sakes alone, but out of submission to God. Out of submission to his heavenly father. And he calls us to submit as well. Not simply for the sake of government, but in submission to our heavenly father. And we can do so with hope. Because what the Romans and other secular governments may mean for evil, God intends for good. The payment of taxes that probably in some part paid for the putting of Jesus to death was used by God in the death of Christ to pay for all the sins of those who would trust in him. Jesus' death was God's plan to deal with our sin. And Jesus rose from the grave victorious over sin, over death, and over hell. And he ascended into heaven where he tells us he's preparing a place for those of us who trust in him. So family, that's why we're not trying to take back this country. Or make this a Christian nation again. It never was one. We don't have our hopes ultimately in this land or in this world. We have our hopes set on another world, on another land. We have our hopes set like Abraham on a better city, whose builder and maker is God, where there will be perfect peace and perfect righteousness and perfect justice, where King Jesus will reign on his throne forever and we will be in his presence forever. That day awaits us, brothers and sisters. So we don't need to create the perfect society now. 
Yes, work for it, labor for it, but we don't need to try to find this kind of nirvana, this kind of heavenly bliss now. We can live now as godly citizens in an ungodly society waiting for that heavenly home. Until we reach there, may the Lord give us joy in serving him. May the Lord give us wisdom to know how to do that well. May the Lord give us peace and long-suffering with one another as we disagree on how best we might do that. But may the Lord give us unity, knowing that we are all going somewhere better. May the Lord help us and lead us home faithfully as citizens in his kingdom, representing his king, even as we're strangers now in another kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that covers so many areas of our lives. Lord, you say if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of you. You will give it liberally. Oh, we confess. Oh, we're living in strange times. Right, we need to know how to live faithfully in governments that do a lot of good for us, but in governments that also rebel against you in many ways. Lord, help us to live faithfully as, as your citizens and as good citizens in this world in this government. Lord, help us to bow the knee to King Jesus and out of submission to him to serve others well, to love others well, to obey the, the laws, the many laws, most of them that we can obey in clear conscience. Lord, give us discernment to know what's truly against you individually and, and, and as a body, Lord. Forgive us for our weakness in that. Lord, help us to, to, to see that our sufficiency is from you. And so, Lord, help us we pray. Help us to give everything to you. Surrender everything to you as our king. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.